The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Chapter 12, we were here last week, and I noted last week in chapter 12 that starting at verse 1 of Luke chapter 12, Jesus is heading probably into his last six months of his three-and-a-half-year ministry. He's done with his work in Galilee where he was born and raised. And now he's going to be circling and on the perimeter of his ministry in Jerusalem leading up to his death where he will be crucified. So the context of Luke chapter 12 is six months before Jesus is crucified and it's somewhere in the area of Judah. And he's going along and spontaneously he begins to teach. And thousands of people are following him. He's amassed a crowd because of his popularity and people were curious. And he's been doing miracles for three years and giving out free food. And some strange, for some, teaching that's really not strange at all. It's consistent with the Old Testament. It's God's truth. Uh, And he was amassing this following. And Luke chapter 12 verse 1 tells us literally that there were tens of thousands of people. Tens of thousands of people. He stops to teach and there are tens of thousands of people outside crushing in on him to hear what this rabbi has to say or what he'll do next. So that's the context. And Jesus begins to teach. He exposes religious hypocrisy Then he talks about the priorities of true religion, which is what the beginning of chapter 12 is about. And basically, he mentions the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what true religion and spirituality is about, is the true God, knowing the true God. As a matter of fact, that's Jesus' definition the last week of his life in John 17. This is eternal life, that they might know you, the one true God and his Son. This is eternal life. What is eternal life? It is knowing the true God of the universe that has revealed himself through Christ, through Scripture. That's the essence of what Jesus has just finished teaching about. The most important thing in the world that any person needs to know. Who is this true God? How can I know him? How has he revealed himself? Well, he's revealed himself as a triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no greater truth than this. There is no loftier heavenly reality that anybody needs to hear. And that's what he just spent talking to these tens of thousands of people about out in the open, spontaneously, in public, as they're crushing down on each other. It says they were stepping on one another. This is a dangerous, really, situation. And so Jesus gives this life-changing, eternal truth. And then immediately after that, somebody in the crowd shouts out and interrupts his time of teaching. And that's in verse 13, so we already saw that. So he's talking about the most important spiritual realities ever. And then this man rudely interjects and shouts out a comment. It's not even a question. That's verse 13, chapter 12. That's the context. Someone in the crowd, as Jesus is talking about, the most important spiritual truths ever. Someone in the crowd, it doesn't matter, the someone. It's good his name isn't mentioned because it's pretty embarrassing as he exposes his foolishness. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, really, someone in the crowd commanded Jesus at that moment. Someone in the crowd demanded of Jesus in that moment. While while he's teaching, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, 
Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. And then Jesus responded immediately, verse 14. But Jesus, but, contrast, whoa. But means he's not going to answer that question. He's, he's not going to service that demand. In other words, the but is, well, on the contrary, contrary to what you're demanding me to do, commanding me to do, contrary to that, that's what it means, the but. But Jesus said to him, man, sir, or not even sir, it's man, man, Mr. So Jesus deliberately puts a distance, an unfamiliarity. He has no personal obligation to this guy and to tend to his needs. That's what he's doing. Mr. Man, who appointed me, Jesus, a judge or arbitrator over you? So what was this guy asking? This guy was asking, uh, teacher, intervene and make my brother give me my money. Give me what's due to me. Give me what I have coming. Which was that? My retirement. I want my wealth. I want my money. I want to be taken care of. And his focus is completely on the here and the now. Completely crass. Totally tone deaf. And I'm highlighting verse 13 because the rest of the chapter of chapter 12 is, is Jesus' response to this guy's comment in verse 13. And this is why, one of the reasons why Jesus is the master teacher. If he had a script, he threw that out the window. If he had notes, wasn't going to refer to him anymore. Because from 14 to the end of the chapter, this is all a very specific, focused response to this guy's demand of verse 13. Give me my money. Intervene for me. Serve me. And if, so key to understanding the context, if you're reading this on your own and studying it, this will help you. If you just read everything from verse 14 all the way down to the end of the chapter, really to 59, through the idea that while Jesus is responding, he's answering this guy's spontaneous, crass, foolish, short-sighted, self-centered demand. That's the context, and we see that all the way through uh, for the rest of the chapter. Uh, last week, we went from 13, ambitiously, all the way down to 31, uh, looking at Jesus' response. And there was a theme that we pointed out throughout this entire chapter. Actually, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, all the way to 13, verse 9, is apparently one occasion, if you wanted to put it all together. So don't separate that when you're studying it. Uh, there is a consistent theme weave, uh, that weaves its way all throughout this chapter, and we highlighted that this week. It starts in verse 4 of chapter 12, where Jesus said to this crowd, massive crowd, actually there's tens of thousands of people, but he's very specific, and he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to his followers who actually love him and know him and legitimately want to get to know him. And that's why in verse 4, even though there's tens of thousands of people, he says, my friends, so what's he doing? He's being very specific. I want to focus in, even though there's massive crowds, I want to focus in on my friends. I want to focus on the few, the loyal, the faithful. He can't even say, my 12 apostles, because Judas is probably there. He's not going to be faithful. My friends. So it's a very small group. As a matter of fact, most of what Jesus is saying in this chapter is to this very small audience mixed in this massive crowd. And he calls them, my friends. In verse 4, uh, he calls them little flock later in the chapter in verse 32. It's a very intimate 
uh, kind of moniker that he gives. And then in verse 22, he said to his disciples, as opposed to uh, those who weren't his disciples, but those who were personally following him. So that's the context. It's very personal. He's preparing his own for the future. And for many of them, the future would be dismal from a human point of view, especially the 11 apostles who would die and give their life for following Christ. They would be murdered. They would be killed for their faith. That's their faith. That's what's coming. Jesus is preparing them for that. He mentions death two times in the chapter. Don't be afraid if they kill you, if they destroy your body. Rather, fear God, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So that's the context. And because he's talking specifically to those who know him personally, in God's plan, this applies to us 2,000 years later. If you know Jesus Christ today, you have a personal relationship with him, you can embrace chapter 12 all as your own. You can own it. Jesus Christ is speaking to you today through his living word, the scripture, and through his Holy Spirit. And another thing I love about Jesus as the master teacher, the greatest teacher there ever was, who was God in a body, God, the God-man, who had access to omniscience, didn't always exercise it in his incarnation, the greatest teacher there ever was. But one of the things I appreciate about or love about Jesus' teaching, every time he opens up his mouth, is the simplicity of his teaching. Jesus, the master teacher, the God-man, speaks. And then you read it, and it's, it's beautifully simple. You can understand it and comprehend it very easily. It's, it's relevant to what's going on in life. It's not this highfalutin, incomprehensible theological discourse that you need a dictionary to read every other word because of its utter profundity, which happens a lot today, or some philosophical dissertation that goes so deep you can't even understand it. That is not Jesus. And that's evident here. This is very simple, the way he speaks. It's short. It is simple. Virtually anybody in the audience would be able to understand it. Teenagers in the audience, when he preached this, understood what he was saying. Young children could understand and relate to many of the things that he's saying here. Hey, kids, look at the lilies of the field. Hey, kids, look at the grass and how it's green and God provides for it. You know, God, the creator, the one that made you, he provides for his own just like that. Trust him. That's how Jesus taught. What a master teacher. So you've got this beautiful simplicity, uh, this relevance, this practicality, uh, it can be easily understood and appropriated. And at the same time, it's got utter profundity. Utter profundity greater than any teaching that has ever been given in the history of the world. You read this once and you keep reading it and keep reading this for years. This passage, Luke 12, you will not be able to exhaust its truths. You will not be able to exhaust its application. And that happened to me this week. But, oh, okay, I'm going to preach uh, verses 13 through 31 last week. Attempted to do that. And there was so much there that I thought, wow, uh, there's so much that I missed that's there, that's rich, that we need to drink from and apply to our life and heed and slow down and think upon and meditate and make this a part of our life and be confronted by it and be prayerful about it. That's how I felt last week after the sermon and then studying this week. Okay, we'll go on to the next section and realize, no, no, we won't. <laughs> Not that fast. Slow down. God speaks through his word. The spirit of God speaks to his word to his people today. And there's a message that is just too profound that we need to understand, assimilate, and own in this passage. And it's the theme of do not fear, do not worry. Remember verse 4? 
That's the theme that weaves all throughout. Jesus said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Do not fear. Then keep looking through the chapter all the way down to verse 32. Do not be afraid. It's like bookends on this section. What's his main theme? Do not fear. Do not be afraid. There are things that we need to not fear. There are things we shouldn't be afraid of. And at the same time, in the same passage, he says, rather fear this. So there are things we should fear. There's good fear, bad fear, biblical fear, unbiblical fear, obedient fear, sinful fear. He's specific. And we need to be as well. So there are certain things we should not fear. What does he mean by that? Well, he elaborates what he means by fear, and he gives a synonym for it, and it's worry. Do not worry. So do not fear means do not worry. So we saw that last week. That was, another, that was a theme weaving throughout this whole thing. That's Jesus' exhortation. What I mean by do not be afraid and do not fear, what I really mean is do not worry. Verse 22 of Luke 12. Point blank, he says, do not worry about your life. And in the Greek text, I said last week, it could literally be translated as stop worrying because it is a command. And he puts it in that phraseology because he knows what do fallen, finite, sinful people do for a living? What do we do? We worry. That's why he puts it in the form of a command because you're doing it. Stop it. He knows that. He knows that our constitution is weak and frail. We are dependent, contingent beings on God for everything. Nevertheless, he gives this command, do not worry, verse 22. Stop worrying. Now, if you're a Christian or a believer, somebody who knows Jesus Christ, you want to honor him with your life and everything that you do, and then you hear this, and this is a rather abrupt command. It's alarming. It could be convicting. It could make you feel guilty. Some people are offended by it that Jesus said, stop worrying. And he says it so matter-of-factly. There are a lot of implications that flow from his matter-of-fact commandment here, some of which we talked about last week. Stop worrying. Who's he talking to? Well, he's really talking to his own people. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to his friends. He's talking to those who know and love him, who follow him. Really, he's not talking to those who have already rebelled against him. He's not talking to the Jewish leadership sprinkled through the crowd. He's not talking uh, to those who have a self-centered attitude and don't really want to buy into Jesus' ministry or heed his teachings. He's not talking to them. This is an appeal to his own first and foremost. He, he cares about his people. He cares about his own. That's another thing that weaves all throughout this chapter. We didn't get to accentuate as much last week is how do you deal with worry? How do you deal with fear? And what does Jesus camp out on? He emphasizes the care of God the Father for his own. That was the answer. You're struggling with anxiety, you're struggling with worry, then look at God the Father. And look at how he cares for you. What is he in the theme? Almost in every verse. What does God the Father do? He gives, he gives, he gives, he gives, he gives. Almost in every verse. He gives, the Father gives. The Father gives faithfully to his own. The Father cares for his own. The Father gives. He keeps giving. He outgives you. He gives more than we deserve. He gives more than we can handle. He gives more than we can ask for. He gives more than we know what to do with. God the Father, he's a giving God. That's how this conversation ends or his exhortation. Verse 32, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Do not worry about your future, about your life, about anything, about being taken care of, little flock, those who know and love God, who have been following me. Why? For your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. There it is. Has chosen. Done deal. Past tense. You know God. God has chosen already to give you the kingdom. What does the kingdom include? Everything. Everything. Romans 8 
says that God the Father has given everything to Jesus Christ as the heir of all things. And then he goes on to say, Paul does, that Christians are joint heirs with Christ. We inherit everything. What does the Father do? He cares for his children. What does the Father do? He gives to his children, and he keeps on giving. What does he give them? Everything. Everything regarding the kingdom, which is, means everything you need in this life. Therefore, do not be afraid. Do not worry. Don't worry about your needs in this life. So in light of all that background and just giving you the context, I've got a question for you. And this is a question for me. I asked it of myself all week long, every day, because I was convicted by it, because I had just preached on it last week, and I knew, oh, i got to preach on this again. And it was this chapter. So my question is, how did you do this week with respect to your anxiety? Don't answer it out loud. Answer in your own heart. How did you do, especially if you were here last week, you heard the sermon, you saw the passage, you saw Jesus' exhortation to his people, stop worrying. And then Jesus doesn't just leave an empty vacuum calling us just to obey out of mere legalism. He gave three reasons why believers should not be worrying, of why they should stop worrying. And we talked about those reasons last week. So, in light of that, if you're a believer, you're a Christian, you were here last week, you heard the sermon, you saw Jesus' command, how did you do with your worry last week? How about this morning? If you were here last Sunday and you heard Jesus' exhortation to stop worrying, how are you doing today since the time you woke up? Did you, how'd you sleep last night? Sometimes when we worry too much about the wrong thing, there's legitimate worry and illegitimate worry. Jesus is talking about legitimate worry. So we'll set the record straight up front. He's condemning illegitimate worry. He's not talking about legitimate concern. It's illegitimate worry. It's fretting. It's a lack of faith. It's illegitimate concern. That's what he's talking about. Having the wrong frame of mind. That's what he's exposing. That's what he's condemning. Stop doing that. How'd you do this week? How'd you do this morning? Do you have anything right now that you're fretting over, that you're worrying about, you're losing sleep about, you have angst about? You know, some people, when you talk to them or sit down with them, you can literally see the worry on them because of visibly you can see it. In their body, the tremors, the way they talk, they are all amped up and hyped up and literally overwhelmed with anxiety and fear, angst. This is the very thing that Jesus is saying, don't do that. If you're a believer, don't do that. Stop that. Some people wouldn't like Jesus if he was the biblical counselor. You come in and you're overcome with angst and worry and you sit down and you're visibly shaken and you begin to tell him what your problem is and you say, yeah, counselor, counselor, um, tell my brother to give me the inheritance. That was your problem. And this is what he'd tell you. He'd run, well, let me tell you a parable. No, I'm not going to do that. But let me tell you a parable about the true meaning of life and what the true priorities are. And then he'll say about three or four times, stop worrying. You seem to be overcome with anxiety. Stop worrying. And let me give you three legitimate reasons why you can stop worrying or why you should stop worrying. And then let me bless you with some good news of all the amazing things since you're a child of God and God knows you of all the amazing things he's already given you and he continues to give you so that you know that you are fully taken care of. That's how his biblical counseling session would go. So how did you do? Uh, I had opportunities this week to stop and pause and think, whoa, here's an occasion. I could worry about this. I could get some angst. 
Oh, and then reverberating in my head were Jesus' words. Stop. Do not worry. Knock it off. Okay, whoa. And then I had to deal with it. How do I do that? Well, then I got to think about the things that Jesus said to think about. And then one thing I also said last week is, you know, Jesus says in verse 22, do not worry. So that's a command. And when Jesus gives a command, you must obey. And if you don't obey, that's a disobedience. And if you disobey, that is called sin, right? Real simple. So if Jesus says, do not worry, and then we do worry, that's sinful disobedience. That's a sin that needs to be confessed to God. God, Lord Jesus, uh, please forgive me for illegitimate worry. And then you tell them why. Because you commanded it. You said apparently that uh, it was possible that I don't have to worry. And, and these other things that I violated, Lord, help me. It's like the man who said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That was an honest prayer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. We can pray that probably pretty often. So we talked about how Jesus' command implies that uh, this is, it's disobedience to not obey Jesus' words, do not worry. But we also talked about, and I think this is even a more encouraging truth, is the fact that Jesus said stop worrying, and he said it repeatedly, is Jesus is implying that we can actually stop worrying. I mean, that is profound. That's really simple, but that is profound. I mean, Jesus, is that really what you're saying? You are calling us and demanding that we stop having a life riddled with fear and worry, and you're telling me to stop it, and you give me three reasons why. Are you saying that I can live life that way? Are you, are you saying that I can overcome worry and, and anxiety? And yet we said yes. According to the text, we agreed, yes, that's what he is saying last week. Remember, Jesus wasn't about managing your worry, living with your worry. No, it was banishing your worry overcoming your worry. And because of the mixed crowd, I know that we got the gamut in here and out there of where you're at. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, I'm not talking to you right now immediately. That Jesus has plenty to say if you, if you don't know Christ in this passage. But right now, specifically, talking to the Christians, if you're a believer, you truly know Jesus Christ, we have the gamut in terms of where you are in your thinking about the possibility of living a worry-free life. There are some sincere, legitimate Christians who don't believe this is possible. They hear this from Jesus. Uh, do not worry. Uh, it's, it's hyperbole, obviously. He's exaggerating again. There are Christians who believe that. Or maybe they don't believe it's possible just because, and this is probably even more true, their own personal experience. They were born and raised maybe in a situation, in a home, in a lifestyle, in a world, in a worldview, and with teaching that never even mentioned this, never even laid this out as a possibility, that actually you can live life in such a way that you can have a worry-free life as Jesus has laid out here. And they've never experienced it. They've never heard it, completely ignorant of it. Maybe that's why. And they're questioning, well, I'd love to have that, but is that even possible? I'd love to have that, but is that even possible? And maybe they don't even know anybody who lives like this, who can truly say this is how they live. And I, I actually last week said that I believe Jesus was being literal, and he wants his people to stop worrying. He wants his people to have a worry-free life, not a concern-free life, but an overwhelming, uh, smothering life suffocating, 
choking kind of worrisome existence. That's what he's talking about. You can live that way. Jesus literally meant that. And I threw it out last week that I actually know some Christians who live this way. I met the first two when I was in college. Actually, one Christian like this when I was in college and another Christian when I was in seminary. And I was just like, wow, that is awesome. One was 70 years old, dear saint, been saved almost their whole life. And they just, uh, they loved Christ. And they just had this supernatural peace. And it was refreshing. It was unique. I hardly ever saw it. I wasn't experiencing it in my own life. But I do know one thing is I spent time, my wife and I, for two summers around this person. It's like, I want that. How does she do that? It was a sister in the Lord. How did she do it? Well, it was a lifelong 50, 60 years of discipline of doing what Jesus said and the principles that the New Testament lays out. Then another one was a pastor that I got to know who lived this way as well. And it was principled. It wasn't by coincidence. It wasn't by mistake. It wasn't by chance. It wasn't just based on their temperament or how they were born or their circumstances or they had everything good or they didn't have any trials in their life. Quite the contrary. A life full of trials and yet nevertheless living a life that was anxiety-free, always trusting God in everything. And again, another model of somebody I got to know that, man, I want that. Now, those of you who don't know me, when I was in my 20s, well, I got saved when I was 19. Uh, I was a high-anxiety person before I got saved as a teenager. High-anxiety meaning concerned, worried, worried about the future, worried about tomorrow, worried about where I'd go to college, worried about how I'd survive, live, get my needs met. Didn't know God. I had reason to worry. When you don't know God, you better worry. Then I got saved at age 19, and the worry just poof, did not go away once I got saved. It changed. Uh, I saw God in a new way. He was faithful. He was the provider. But my worrisome habit was not completely eradicated in total when I got saved at age 19. And I, I look back and I think, man, during the 20s, saved, new Christian, got married, Christian husband, started having kids, Christian dad, serving in church. Man, I was, I was a worry wart. I had a lot of angst and a lot of anxiety. Many sleepless nights. But one thing I noticed, then I got into my 30s, and, and then I look back, and uh, just being exposed to Scripture, biblical truth, Jesus' demands, the provisions of the Father, trying to make a habit of implementing these things, depending upon God, and just over time, little by little, when I was in my 30s, I look back, man, I was a totally different person in my 30s than in my 20s, because God was allowing my worry to dissipate noticeably. Same thing then in my 40s and then in my 50s. So there's been this kind of growth graph like this. Oops, backwards, whoop. But it's going in the right direction. So in hindsight, I can look back over 35 years or so and say, you know what? Experientially and personally, I can attest that, that Jesus is true to his promises. If you know Jesus Christ personally, you have the spirit of God living in you. The Spirit of God who created the universe, who raised Jesus from the dead. The Spirit of God lives in you. And if you walk in obedience to the Spirit of God, according to Genesis, or Galatians 5, 22 and 23, when you walk in obedience on a regular basis, step by step, trusting Him, following Him, 
obeying him, confessing sin, then you will be walking in the Spirit, and he will impart to you, in that moment, the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, joy. Did you know it's hard to have deep spiritual inner joy and overwhelming anxiety at the same time? Did I say hard to do? I think that's impossible. When God imparts the fruit of the spirit of joy in your heart, you know what it does? It smothers out worry. So if you're walking in obedience to the spirit of God who lives in you, Christian child of God, he imparts to you while you're obedient in that moment of time. It's a moment-by-moment, step-by-step walk. You could be walking in the spirit one minute, and a half hour later, you're not walking in the spirit. You're kicking the cat, you're mad at the wife, whatever it is. It's moment by moment, trusting Christ and then getting back in the groove. And then he imparts to you love, supernatural love, joy, love, joy, peace. There it is. Do you know it's very difficult to have the supernatural peace of God guarding your heart, that's your emotions and your mind and your thought life, and at the same time have depression and at the same time have worry? If you have the supernatural peace of God guarding your heart and your mind, your emotions and your thoughts, actually, that smothers out depression. That smothers out anxiety. That smothers out fear. And that's possible for the child of God. When you're walking in the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. Oh, that last one is key, self-control. Been a Christian over 30 years, and I keep, to this day, it's, okay, the fruits of the Spirit, uh, always evaluating my life in light of the fruits of the Spirit. How am I doing in this moment of time? Not this week, but in this moment of time, where am I at? And that self-control one, boy, that's hard to rein in. The fruit of the Spirit, self-control. And that's key to dealing with depression, which is what? Concern, illegitimate concern over the past, and then worry, which is illegitimate fear about the future. And there's overlap there. But worry, sinful worry, is all about self-control of the mind, of your thought life. If you rein in your thoughts in keeping with Scripture, like Philippians 4 tells us to do, that that is the cure to worry. That is the cure to depression. That's God's solution. And it comes through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Walking by the Spirit, having self-control. Control. I've got to control my thought life. I've got to get rid of my thoughts that are illegitimate and think on God's thoughts. I need to think the way Jesus said to think in Luke 12. Those three priorities. Jesus, why can you tell me to stop worrying, to knock it off? He gave us those three reasons. Well, first of all, trust the Father. Trust the Father. He is the provider. He will provide. He will give. If you are worrying about the future, you are not trusting the Father as the provider. That was his first Suggestion. The second one. Well, Jesus, why can I stop worrying as you command me to? Well, trust the Father. And then his second point there was, well, look at worrying. Does it accomplish anything? Are you getting anything done by worrying? Is it helping? Is it changing the circumstances? Is it changing that difficult person you have to work with at work or live with that's a relative? Is worrying working? No. It is fruitless. So that was his second reason. Worrying doesn't do any good. It's futile. It's a waste of time. It's poor stewardship. So trust the Father. He's the provider. He loves you. Worrying doesn't work anyway. It accomplishes absolutely nothing. And then this third reason, right there between the eyes, that's what pagans do. The end of the section there. 
That's what, pay, what do pagans do? They desire illegitimately. They are always worried about their next day and what they can get out of this world and how they're going to survive. They don't know the God of the universe personally. They have cause to worry. And Jesus said that. Some translations say the nations. This is what the nations do. That's the word for ethnos. Pagans, heathens, says the King James. Unbelievers. When you are overwhelmed with worry, anxiety, fear of the future, you are thinking like a pagan. Jesus said that. Don't do that. You're a child of God. You're a child of God. Change your thinking. The Father, verse 31, seek first his kingdom, and these things will be added unto you. Verse 32, do not be afraid, do not fear, do not worry, little flock. Your Father, the God who knows you, the God who has saved you, the God who cares for you, the God who is all sovereign, the God who can do anything, the God who will provide for you, your Father has chosen gladly, great joy that the Father has, to give you the kingdom. That means to give you all things that you need to live in this life. To give you the kingdom. What does it mean? So if you're a Christian, are you living in the kingdom right now? Yes. Is there a future manifestation of the kingdom coming that is yet to be enjoyed? Yes. But you are in the kingdom right now if you're a believer, if you're a Christian. What does it take to live in the kingdom? It takes knowing the king. Who's the king? Jesus. Where's the kingdom? It's everywhere, every, anywhere and everywhere Jesus has reign and domain. And he reigns everywhere. He reigns on the earth. He reigns in his church. He reigns among his people. And when you got saved by believing in his gospel, you were immediately in that moment of believing, when you were regenerate, you were transferred from the kingdom of Satan into the glorious kingdom of the blessed son of Jesus Christ. Do you live in the kingdom today? If you are a Christian, you do. And that means you have all the resources you need to live this life. Not easy, but you, all the resources are there and accessible. From a faithful Father and a faithful Jesus and a faithful Holy Spirit who lives in you. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.